Hi everyone, welcome to the Blue Ridge Church of Christ podcast. My name is Phil Bruns and thank you so much for taking time from your day to be with us. Well, if you're listening and you would say to someone that you love Jesus, you would want to have an impact in your community as Jesus did. Today, Ezra is going to bring us a message showing us three pillars that can help us in a better way have an impact into our communities for him. Hello, I'm excited to continue our series on the church in Ephesus and exploring what we can learn from this group of faithful people and how we can live in faith today for Jesus. Today we'll be talking about how we can have impact on our communities for Jesus. So I'll talk about the first few years of the Ephesian church and how it stood out in the city of Ephesus. I have three supporting pillars for making impact. One is learning more accurately the way of God. Two is to speak the language of your neighbors. And three is to have faithful resilience. So pillar one, to learn more accurately the way of God. Let's read the book of Acts chapter 18 verses 24 through 28. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, arrived in Ephesus, an eloquent man who was well-versed in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being enthusiastic in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things about Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he assisted greatly those who had believed through grace, for he was vigorously refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So Apollos was this spark that began the church in Ephesus. And when Priscilla and Aquila showed up, he had already been teaching there. And he was an Alexandrian. And this is really important. Maybe you've heard of the Library of Alexandria, the great intellectual epicenter of the Roman Empire. So Alexandrian Jews were really famous for their masterful understanding of both the scriptures and modern thought. This group of Alexandrian Jews was responsible for translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek in what we know as the Septuagint today. So Apollos is from this incredibly intelligent and learned tradition. And he learns the way of Jesus and is preaching it to the people in Ephesus. And it says he was preaching it accurately. But then he gets told by Priscilla and Aquila, who are Jews from Rome, they tell him, hey, you're doing it wrong. You're missing the most important part. Now let's pause here and think for a second. How would that make you feel? So you've been believing something and and teaching this thing to other people, and it's really important to you, and you just get told that your message is incomplete. You're not giving the full story. And remember, this was like Apollos' field of expertise. So this kind of thing actually happened to me way back when I was in college. I was studying the Bible with some guys, and they taught me about some core aspects of Christianity. Similar to Apollos, I didn't understand being baptized into Jesus. But unsimilarly to Apollos, I was honestly pretty offended. Like, who were these people to tell me that I was wrong? But I was wrong, and I had to re-examine the scriptures, which resulted in entirely relearning what I knew about repentance and baptism, and honestly just following Jesus in general. It was really hard to accept that, first, I was wrong, 
And second, I had been so wrong for so long. And that keeps happening. About once every two years, I end up finding out that I'm totally wrong about something that was really important to me. And it's a painful experience, but I'm grateful for the experience of being wrong and having to adjust and relearn. And I'm sure many of you listening have had similar experiences. Your paradigm was shifted because you were willing to learn more accurately the way of God. And it really takes a lot of faith to relearn beliefs. So Apollos is this incredibly humble guy, in addition to being very intelligent and eloquent. He was willing to relearn a lot of what he knew about God. And he was the man who laid the foundation for the church in Ephesus. As a side note, some people think that Apollos went on to write the book of Hebrews. I personally think there's more compelling evidence that it was Priscilla, but regardless, Apollos was an important person in the early church. So let's continue reading. Acts 19, verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the inland regions and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, But we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said to him, Into the baptism of John. So we see parallels back to Apollos. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now the total number of men was about twelve. So he entered into the synagogue and was speaking boldly for three months, discussing and attempting to convince them concerning the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and were disobedient, reviling the way before the congregation, he departed from them and took away the disciples, leading discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so there's a lot of really good theology here that's honestly super helpful in even understanding the book of Ephesians itself, including some of the tensions between Jews and non-Jews in the church, but we're not going to get into every detail of it today. I just want you to notice verse 10. It says, And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The population of Asia Minor at the time was roughly two and a half million people. And Paul's teaching from the lecture hall of Tyrannus spread across Asia Minor like wildfire. Ephesus was a huge trade hub, mostly because of its port. So any information that was learned in Ephesus would quickly spread across the whole region by word of mouth. So the nearby churches of Laodicea, Heropolis, Colossae, Smyrna, and others would likely have been largely populated by people who heard the gospel either in Ephesus or from people who had been to Ephesus. So this teaching by Paul to these 12 disciples was very important. Apollos started teaching them, and then Priscilla and Aquila guided them, and Paul continued to teach them, and together they built the church in Ephesus on the strong foundation of the word of God. And it was God that grew the church. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is emphasizing here a continuation of Jesus's ministry. The about 12 disciples is honestly a dead giveaway. Luke could have been more exact. He could have said, there were 13 disciples, or there were 10 disciples. 
but instead he takes the opportunity to point to the similarities to Jesus's ministry. Jesus was continuing to work in the church in these repeated patterns, and it was crucial for Luke to show the believers around the world that Paul was continuing the ministry of Jesus, because people were questioning if Paul's teaching was legit. So for us, when we examine our ministries, do they look like Jesus's ministry? And I'm not saying that everybody listening should go out and find 12 disciples, but when you see your ministry, does it look like Jesus's ministry? And I really believe that if a ministry like the church in Ephesus is built foremost on the Bible and not on human tradition, then I have faith that it will look more and more like Jesus's ministry every day. And that is the first pillar of impact. Live for him by humbly learning more accurately the way of God. And it's a continual process, so be willing to have some grace on yourself. That brings us to pillar two. Speak the language of your neighbors. Let's continue reading in Acts 19, verses 11 through 16. It says, And God performed extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or work aprons that had been touched by his skin were carried away to those who were sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. But some itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Now seven sons of a certain Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. But the evil spirit answered and said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I am acquainted with, but who are you? And the man who had the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued all of them, and prevailed against them so that they ran away from that house naked and wounded. So we see that Ephesus wasn't just the nexus of trade, but it was also the place to gather for magicians and practicers of spiritual arts. And part of that was because Ephesus was home to one of the great wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, who we'll get into later. In many ways, Ephesus was not only the Roman capital of the region, it was also the spiritual capital of the region. And spirituality at that time was almost entirely occultic. It's honestly not the first place I would look if I were trying to plant a church. So there's these seven Jewish guys who maybe they were the son of an actual high priest or somebody filling the role of a religious authority in that region. And if they were sons of the actual high priest who would have lived in Jerusalem, you have to wonder what they were doing in Ephesus, the dark magic capital of the empire. And they'd try to mix their Judaism with magic, which actually seems to be working for them up to this point. They're probably calling on the names of angels to cast out demons and treating spiritual entities like mercenaries for hire. And then they see Paul, and they must have seen him as this great magician. He's out here healing people, he's making cloth magical, and even if the cloth wasn't magical, the hype was there, and sometimes the perception is really more important than the reality. And they wanted to be great magicians too. They wanted this power that Paul had over the spiritual realm. So they tried to use Jesus's name. But as soon as they try to use Jesus's name for their own purposes, they just get totally wrecked. So let's continue reading, picking up in verse 17. It says, And this became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was exalted. And many of those who had believed came, confessing and disclosing their practices. 
and many of those who practiced magic brought together their books and burned them up in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the value and found it was 50,000 silver coins. In this way, the word of the Lord was growing in power and prevailing. So that's when the people realized that Paul wasn't just some super magician. And this shocked people. He was outperforming the greatest magic users of the empire, and he wasn't even a magician. And honestly, I would have been a little bit mad. Like, I'm out here studying from mean old guys and smelly caves and dealing with wild and dangerous people, learning spells, mixing toxic potions. And then there's this guy, who isn't even a magician, and he's just walking around healing people and doing exorcisms by touch. And what's honestly more wild to these people than the power of Jesus that was coming out of Paul was that he wasn't even using that to seek his own glory. Paul was preaching the good news of salvation, and he used the God-given miracles to confirm the truth of what he was saying, not to build his prestige or his bank account. Paul spoke into this community of magic users, and he understood his neighbors, so he spoke in terms that they understood. I doubt a lot of the magicians would have come to Tyrannus' lecture hall to hear some monotheist teach about self-sacrifice and love, but they heard Paul's message of power and healing loud and clear. And many of the local magicians' response was belief. They saw and understood that Jesus and the word of God was greater than any other powers out there. Some people are impressed with power, others are impressed with logic or acts of selflessness. Everybody speaks a different language. But an ambassador speaks the language of their assigned country well, and Jesus' followers are his ambassadors. In your circles of influence, how do you interact with people? If someone is a mathematician, do you speak in terms of mathematics that point to Jesus as the pinnacle of truth? Or if someone is an artist, do you speak to them in terms of art that venerate Jesus as the finest beauty? Or if someone is into magic or spirits, do you speak in terms of magic and spirituality that honor Jesus as the king of the physical and spiritual realms? And are you humble, not using flashy arguments to make other people feel dumb, but do you gently demonstrate the truth through your conversation? And that's the second pillar. Speak the language of your neighbors. I also want to make a side note about something interesting here in the text. It says that the value of the scrolls was 50,000 silver coins. And it says that, in this way, the word of the Lord was growing in power and was prevailing. So I thought 50 seemed like an arbitrary number, but I looked into the construction, and in the Greek it's actually five myriads, and a myriad is 10,000. So five ten-thousands of silver coins. And you know what's interesting about the number 10,000? It stands for perfect completeness in Jewish thought. And the number five, it stands for Torah, the law of God. So the magic scrolls were burned up, and the magicians were given, in exchange, the perfect completeness of the law of God. Not in the value of silver coins, but in the value of being able to hear the teaching from God's word. So that's a whole sermon in itself, and there's honestly plenty of for-hymn points you can pull out of that, but I'll leave that for you to look into and ponder on your own. Let's go to the third pillar, faithful resilience. So the repentance of the magic-using community 
wasn't the end of the origin story of the Ephesian church. In fact, it was just a catalyst that got things started. The burning of the magic scrolls was huge, and it struck at the very identity of Ephesus. And it was also a huge economic disruption. It was very, very unpopular, and people flipped out. Why was this event so important? Let's look at the context of this city. So there's lots of silver in Ephesus, and a lot of silversmiths. They had many important guilds and trades in Ephesus, but the silversmiths were one of the most important. And the reason is that they made and exported a lot of silver idols, especially in service to the goddess Artemis. They generated a lot of wealth for the city. So the magic capital was at Ephesus, honestly because it was financially lucrative. The city pretty much existed for the purpose of trade, magic, and especially the trade of magic. Let's talk about the goddess Artemis for a minute here. So you may have heard that Artemis is a fertility goddess, but if you know Greek myths, you know that Artemis is a virgin. She's also this huntress goddess, the sister of Apollo, and I was a little confused. I didn't actually realize this until I went to Ephesus. The Ephesian Ephesus is quite different from the Greek pantheon that we know. Basically, Ephesian Artemis is a much more ancient and powerful fertility goddess, and she was the top god of the popular pantheon of Asia Minor. The two goddesses became conflated through history, but the one we're dealing with here is a queen fertility goddess. So Ephesus is the center of the Artemis cult, which is really important culturally, and the followers of Artemis have a bone to pick with the followers of Jesus. I'm going to read Acts 19, 23 through 24, and I encourage you, if you're not driving, close your eyes and imagine that you're there in Ephesus, wandering around the marketplace, when all of the sudden this happens. Now there happened at that time no little disturbance concerning the way, for someone named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver replicas of the temple of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, and the workers occupied with such things, and said, Men, you know that from this business we get our prosperity. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and turned away a large crowd by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. So not only is there a danger in this line of business of ours will come to disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess of Artemis will be regarded as nothing. And she is about to be brought down even from her grandeur, she whom the whole of Asia and the entire world worship. And when they heard this, they became full of rage and began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with a tumult. And with one purpose, they rushed into the theater, seizing Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Macedonians, traveling companions of Paul, but when Paul wanted to enter into the popular assembly, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were rulers in Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, and were urging him not to risk himself by going into the theater. So some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know why they had assembled. And some of the crowd advised Alexander, when the Jews put him forward. But Alexander, motioning with his hand, was wanting to defend himself to the popular assembly. 
But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they were shouting with one voice from all of them for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the city secretary had quieted the crowd, he said to them, Ephesian men, for who is there among men who does not know the Ephesian city is honorary temple keeper of the great Artemis and of her image fallen from heaven? Therefore, because these things are undeniable, it is necessary that you be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If then Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against anyone, the court days are observed and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you desire anything further, it will be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of rioting concerning today, since there is no cause in relation to which we will be able to give an account concerning this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the church has challenged the core of Ephesian identity. And the patriotic fervor takes hold. Using religion as a mask, the Ephesian patriots take to the streets and it's total chaos. Some church members are caught up and dragged along, and some try to make a stand, but at the end of the day, the city authorities are the only ones who can make the crowd calm down. Riots are, after all, bad for commerce. So we can see from the start that there are two very different approaches here. Paul, way back in verse 9, already showed that he didn't want to cause a big public scene when he retreated from the synagogue to the lecture hall of Tyrannus in order to teach in a less antagonistic environment. Compare that to Demetrius and the craftspeople who are intentionally trying to cause a big scene. They take it from the Agora into the theater, the two most public places in Ephesus. We also see that Paul healed people in order to show them who Jesus was, not to gain power for himself. Compare that to the silversmiths and craftspeople of Ephesus who are using their religious fervor and the fervor of the people to protect their business interests. And then we see the, the local authorities who were trying to protect Paul and were clearly frustrated with the mob. In all ways, the church proved herself to be innocent and respectable. And people noticed, both enemies and allies. They made a huge impact on their community and people noticed. They noticed that this thing that the church was doing was different. So after this, we don't actually hear much about the events that take place in Ephesus. In his book called Paul, N.T. Wright theorizes that Paul was imprisoned and the church went through some serious persecution following the riot, but we really can't know for sure. As soon as things settle down, Paul leaves and never comes back. He writes, presumably, of his experience to the Corinthians, who he is traveling to visit after leaving Ephesus. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8-9, through 9, Paul writes, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning our affliction that happened in the province of Asia, that we were burdened to an extraordinary degree beyond our strength, so that we were in despair even of living. But we ourselves had the sentence of death in ourselves. N.T. Wright points out that Paul's hardships in Ephesus disturbed him to his core, to the point of suicidal ideation. This was a very dark time for the church. And yet the church in Ephesus continued, and we see in history that it became the nexus church in Asia. It was the central church from which teachers and preachers came to other cities to plant and lead churches for centuries. 
How could this happen? It really speaks to the character of the Christians in these early days, when everything seemed against them, but they had a strong foundation. They weren't afraid and they weren't shaken. They were probably worried about being killed or being kicked out of the city, but they remained in the face of opposition, and God grew the church. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've had the weight of the sentence of death within yourself. I'm sure many of you listening are no stranger to hardships. I can't begin to name the things that we, as a human society, have gone through and continue to put ourselves through. Going through dark times is not just a story about Ephesus. It's a story about my city and yours. And in this election year, we can only assume that there's going to be more difficulties ahead of us. But, in the words of Tolkien, there are other forces at work in this world besides the will of evil. And that can give us hope. If we can have hope that God is working even in the darkest times, then we can be resilient. And that's the third pillar. Be resilient and have faith that God will work in the darkest of places. Be resilient for Jesus and you will have an impact. So to recap, the three pillars of impact in our communities are to continue to learn more accurately the way of God, like Apollos and his disciples. To understand and speak the language of your neighbors, like Paul who challenged the worldview of the local magicians. And have faithful resilience, like the Ephesian church who faced dark times. And you will make an impact for Jesus, like the church in Ephesus did. The city of Ephesus was abandoned a long time ago. Its harbor has dried up, and the marketplace is dust. The great temple of Artemis has collapsed, and so did the religion that supported it. But the church of Ephesus lives on, because it passed on what it had from city to city, from generation to generation. If you continue to grow in knowing God, and you speak into the culture in which you live, and you hold on faithfully, you will have an eternal impact for Jesus. I hope that was helpful, and if you liked it and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're in the Charlottesville, Virginia area would like to stop in and visit us at a Sunday service, please send us a note or visit our website at blueridgedisciples.org for more information.